All right. Well, um, we've got a few here. So you all have a lot of pressure to answer this, this question. Um, why do you read the Bible? Like, what, what are you trying to do when you read the Bible? Or are you trying to do anything? I mean, it, if it's just, I tried to get the checkbox done because someone told me to have the checkbox, that's fine. You know, that's an answer. But I bet there's a more interesting answer out there. To know God, okay? We read the Bible to know God. Why else do we read the Bible? Ben? To relate to God. Yeah. Spend time with God. Yeah, so it might sound a little bit weird to say we read the Bible to relate to God, but if we believe that we have a relationship with God, there has to be a certain amount of relating that goes both ways. All right, why else, Tim? Yeah, to learn the ways of the Lord, to learn to love what he loves, hate what he hates. Yeah, good. What, why else do we read the Bible? Yeah, so um, to recalibrate our understanding of truth. Good. Okay, well, I started out by this class a few weeks ago by pointing out um, that often when you ask Christians why they read the Bible, the answer might be because we need to obey it. Um, And I'm proud of you all for not giving that simple answer because I tried to point out then that there are a lot of commands in the Bible that Christians simply don't obey, ranging from Old Testament food laws to the instruction to greet one another with a holy kiss when you walk into the room. So we kind of problematize reading the Bible for obedience, even though obedience is going to be part of our aim in reading the Bible. But let me um, illustrate that when we come to read the Bible, it's not straightforward, all right? So um, those who don't believe that miraculous gifts are for today will read of Paul when he says, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. And they'll interpret that to say, um, don't prophesy and forbid speaking in tongues. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, there are people who will read Paul say something like, I do not allow a woman to teach and suggest that the verse can only mean that it would be virtuous to have only women teaching or something like that. So we all know kind of intuitively that when we come to the Bible, obedience is important, um, but we don't obey everything we see. And we also know intuitively when we come to the Bible that it's not a matter of just reading the words on a page and naturally intuiting, understanding what's being said. We understand that everything in the Bible requires interpretation. Uh, There's no just plain reading of the Bible. There's always interpretation of the Bible. And that's what we're trying to get to here. Um, I tried to make you all feel a little bit uncomfortable for the first couple weeks, feeling like maybe reading the Bible is an impossible task because it's not straightforward. It's not self-interpreting, these sorts of things. Um, But now, today, I want to reassure you um, that it is possible. And in fact, our whole lives involve interpretation, and we're all pretty good at it. We interpret situations, we interpret communication, we interpret body language, and we do so with a high rate of success. Now, at the same time, we all have probably miscommunicated this past week or misread a situation or misunderstood someone's statement. So we know that errors are still possible. 
um, but, but it is possible to interpret, okay? So I want to assure you of that. I want to say that very clearly because we're entering into our last lesson on theory before we get into practice. And I know that lessons on theory can be somewhat disturbing because it forces us to think about thinking a little bit, which is actually good because only humans can do that, we think. Um, you know, animals can't talk, but we don't think that animals think about thinking. Only humans think about thinking, and only humans at a certain age self-conscious or like very self-consciously think about thinking. That's us in the room. So we're going into one final lesson where we're thinking about what we're doing before we kind of jump into it. And, and that begins with thinking about our purpose in reading the Bible to begin with. Now, I'm still working on the precise language I would use if someone asked me, why is it important for Christians to read the Bible? Um, it's, it's hard to put it in one sentence, but that's also true for just about everything. If you ask somebody why you enjoy watching movies, you probably can't just give a one-sentence explanation. Uh, if you ask someone why you should exercise, you can't give just one reason. There's like a collaboration of reasons that come together. And the same is true when we think about reading the Bible. And we should read the Bible to learn about God, to learn how to understand and navigate the world, to grow in wisdom, all of these things that you guys are saying, to find our place in the story of redemption and so on. Um, but I think we could condense all of that to say that Christians should read the Bible to become fit disciples of Christ. We should read the Bible to become fit disciples of Christ. Now, I can hear someone objecting and say, no, we should read the Bible to glorify God or to something like that. But I think, or to know about God or something. But I think all of that is involved in being a fit disciple of Christ. Um, Jesus himself says that he comes to make the Father known, right? That's how we know God. Um, there, there's a lot involved there, but I think if we could say our primary aim in reading the Bible is to be fitted for discipleship, we're grabbing onto our overarching goal there. Does that make sense? Um, another reason that I, I would like to emphasize that answer we read the Bible to become fit disciples of Christ is because it kind of flows out of the threefold um, interpretive principles that I gave you in the very first lesson. So in the very first lesson, I said, for all of the confusion that there is in reading and interpreting the Bible, we should at least read the Bible Christologically. So primarily reading it is something about Christ. Um, we should read it with the goal of charity, with loving God and loving other people more. And then finally, we need to read it in community. Um, all of these things are integral to what it is to be a disciple of Christ. You can't have disi Christian discipleship without Christ, so we've got to read the Bible Christologically. You can't have Christian discipleship without charity, because Jesus emphasized that foundational to his message is love for God and love for neighbor. And you can't have discipleship without community. Um, Jesus didn't make individual disciples. He called a group of disciples, to, and then he commissioned them to go make disciples. Um, if we miss that community aspect, um, then reading the Bible just produces hermits and um, solitudinarians might be, you know, a, a formal way of saying that, but people who are really just concerned about themselves and uh, the self augmented by Jesus and dressed up in religious practice, but that's not what Christianity is. 
it takes place within community. So if we say we're reading the Bible to become fit disciples, I think all three of those aims are kind of embedded in that purpose. Does that make sense? Okay. So if someone on the street asked you, you know, why are you reading the Bible today? I think you'd want to say something like, so I can become a fit disciple of Jesus. I can become a faithful follower of Jesus. Um, Now, when we're engaging with the Bible then, with that purpose, it's going to force us to approach it in a particular way, okay? It's going to draw our attention to particular features about the Bible. Um, It's going to cause us to define the Bible's meaning in a particular way, okay? You'll have to hang with me here because we're getting now into the theory of it all. Um, When people talk about reading, they talk about three worlds or three elements. They talk about the author, they talk about the text itself, and they talk about the reader, okay? So they'll talk about the world of the author, the world of the text, and the world of the reader. And if you can reflect back in your college days, if you ever took a literature class, you you can remember that this whole thing becomes just like insufferable because it's all about epistemology and um, a lot of pretentious people talking about how they can get behind the reality of the world and they know what's going on. And we need that. But I'm not going to try to get you into that like philosophical level of debate because it just gets really, really muddled. Um, But we still have to consider these things, okay? Um, Most of us know that these debates are going on because we'll hear about it in, like, life. You'll see some examples here in a moment. But first, the world of the author, okay? Uh, There are two main errors when people talk about reading to get at the author's intent, okay? Uh, The first error is actually to ignore the author altogether, So there are some people out there who say when you read any particular text, the author doesn't matter because as soon as the author finished writing the text, the text became a public artifact and subject to meaning that transcends or even contradicts the author's intent. You've probably heard people say these sorts of things. Um, I'd I'd want to just say that there are a lot of problems with that. particularly if we're saying that we're reading the Bible to become fit disciples of Jesus, because we're also saying that God somehow is involved in the authorship of this document. So we just can't set aside the author. The other error, though, is to overemphasize the author. So some, especially conservative theologians, will say statements like, we read for the authorial intent— Um, but then fail to account for circumstances when the author is unknown. For example, in the letter to the Hebrews. We don't know who the author is, so this notion of the author's intent could be kind of lost. Worse, some people over-psychologize the author or they reconstruct this historical picture of the author that may or may not be accurate. Um, You could see how that could happen. We could conceive of Paul in a particular way and then read everything Paul wrote in light of our conception of Paul. And we might believe our conception is accurate, but it might be wrong. So, you know, 
a good example of this from my study this week. I was reading this guy who wrote a Genesis commentary who believes that Moses wrote Genesis, but he also believes that Moses is misogynistic. So in every aspect of Genesis, he points out how sexist and hating of women um, this guy is. Well, his constructed view of the author in his goal at getting at the author's intent is a little bit misguided because his conception of this guy Moses is probably a little misguided. Now, um, it seems to me that the best solution then is to rely on the information we actually have in the text and solid historical studies to identify the implied author. Okay, so this notion of an implied author I think is pretty important. This is why. Authors present themselves in a particular way in the text, and they want you to conceive of them in the way they present themselves. Okay, so this will take a second to unmuddle. When you write a letter to your spouse, in that letter, you're presenting yourself in a particular light. Now, moments later, when you write off an email to your HR department, you're presenting yourself in a different light. In one, you're operating as a spouse, communicating hopefully love and affection. Um, in the other, you're probably operating primarily as a disgruntled employee. And you want to be understood in those lights. There's an implied author. And there are only certain parts of you that should be taken into consideration when interpreting a particular text. Does this make sense? The way that this comes to bear on the ground in our interpretation would show up perhaps in a letter like uh, the letter of James. How does James present himself in that letter? Any, anyone want to take a stab at this? How does... Okay, um, I, hate to, I hate to do this to you, Ben, but you're only half right. Um, he presents himself as a servant of Jesus and actually says nothing about being related to Jesus at all. But in popular writings about James, what's the thing that you think gets emphasized the most? Jesus's familial connection to Jesus, or James's familial connection to Jesus. Well, what I want to suggest is that we might be missing, you know, we're talking about the importance of the author, but if we overemphasize something about the author that he himself doesn't present us, we may become misguided in our readings a little bit. Now, thankfully, in that case, the worst thing that happens is we get a little over-sentimental about what James is saying, or we um, maybe say something like, if even Jesus's brother is willing to say this, you know, we'll say thing things like that, but I don't think James was trying to get us to think about his connection to Jesus as a brother. Um, he's primarily trying to get us to think about what it means to be a servant of Jesus and to live out our lives in service to Christ. So uh, this idea of the implied author is also helpful because it pushes us to examine the text for hints about who the author portrays himself to be and what he's getting at. So when we have texts without authors, um, it doesn't, you know, without authors revealing themselves, it doesn't actually matter. We can still pursue the authorial communicative intent. So when you read Hebrews, for example, we don't have to say we can't know what it means because we don't know the author. We can say the author is doing something here, and there are certain clues that tell us what he's doing that are in the text. So we have to pay attention to the text. So I want to suggest that um, 
and we'll see this more clearly in a moment, the core thing we're trying to get at is the author's communicative intent. What is the author saying and doing in this text? I think that this is especially true for the Bible. Um, it doesn't necessarily apply to the rest of reading. It doesn't apply to non-canonical texts necessarily. I think that with other texts, we can employ a lot of different reading strategies, and sometimes it's actually virtuous for us to take an author's words and um, derive meaning from it that's the opposite of what an author intended. Let me give you an example. Um, we all probably were forced to memorize at some point the Declaration of Independence. Well, when Thomas Jefferson and his contemporaries came up with this phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We know that these guys did not mean by the phrase all men, all people, because they own slaves, they um, did not advocate for this to be true for any non-Anglo person who was currently colonizing the United, what would become the United States. But we can take that document and now supply our meaning to the text. And when we read, we take it to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We're going to apply it to people of every age, ethnicity, skin color, whatever, even though that contradicts the author's intent. Um, so there's a way that we engage with non-biblical texts where we care less about the author, and I think it's appropriate. The reason we can't do this with the Bible is because those authors are writing as inspired by God, where Thomas Jefferson and his buddies were not inspired by God. So we owe the biblical authors something more than we owe the common run-of-the-mill author. Now, I think when it relates to a political document like Declaration of Independence, we have an even stronger argument to minimize authorial intent because they were writing on behalf of the people, so to speak, and they released that document into the people's domain. You know, so now we have some authority to revise or re-engineer or reconstruct what they said to what we the people want it to say. You know, so all I'm trying to say here is Sometimes we get to the Bible and we sense a fractured way of engaging in reading because on texts out there, we are very okay with supplying our own interpretation and our own meaning that violates authorial intent, but here we're not willing to do that. And I'm just trying to give you a reason for why. The primary reason is because there's a divine author behind these authors that is not behind any other authorship. Does this make sense? So even though in our world dispensing with the author is pretty popular, you know, the death of the author, um, out there it, it eventually leads to the death of God as well in divine authorship. We want to avoid that with our biblical engagement, even though we're okay with that with something like the Declaration of Independence. Anything anyone wants to ask or say about the world of the author? All right, I'm just trying to say it's really, really important. Um, particularly for biblical texts. Next, we get to the world of the text then. Okay, this is the second element. And I only want to make a couple of comments here. The first, I just want to be clear that the text does not have agency. The text cannot say something. Authors say something with text. Now, most people that I know, when they say something like, 
well, the Bible says, or the Bible tells me, they're not trying to kill the author and live only in the world of the text, but we should probably avoid saying things like the text says or the Bible says because it's the authors who are communicating in the text who are saying that. Does this make sense? So sometimes philosophical language bleeds down into the common world and we don't mean it in the same way that they mean it. Uh, and then we get really confused and embattled when we talk to people using the same terminology in different ways. So I just would want to warn against saying things like the text says, because the text doesn't have agency. It can't say. It can only convey what the author is saying. Um, and it does so through shared language systems. So this is going to tell us that when we're reading the Bible, we have to investigate that language system, all of the metaphors and uh, language constructs. Um, translators help us by this when they give us translations of texts. And we need to care with what is written, the actual words that are there. We call this semantics. Um, what an author actually says is important, but it can never be separated from what an author is trying to do with what they say. That's called pragmatics. Um, so we always know that a sentence isn't just about the words that are said, but it's about what the author is doing with those words. You all know this from your experience. So if you have a kid who runs in the house after school and chucks his backpack across the room and runs straight for the video game console, and the mom says, hey, have you completed your homework yet? Question mark. Is semantically, that's just a question asking about whether or not homework has been done. But pragmatically, in terms of what that speaker is doing, it's a command, don't play video games, go do your homework. Do you see what I mean? Sometimes we say sentences or ask questions that aren't questions. We're doing something that's bigger than the actual words that are said. So when we read the Bible, we need to pay attention to what is said. But if you only live on that level, you're living in a 2D edition of the world in reality. You have to also think about what the author is doing with what he says and live in a 3D world. Does this make sense? Okay, um, so let, let me give a quick example, and then, Tim, I'll come back to you. If you're reading the Gospels, and you get to this place where Jesus says something like, uh, there's only one reason for divorce, which is adultery, and you just look at the bare words, you might come away thinking, the only way that divorce could, should ever happen is if adultery has taken place. But what you might be missing is what Jesus is doing, which is, first of all, engaging with a debate. So you have to put what he's actually saying in the context of this debate and see if what's happening there is actually just about a divorce exemption clause or something bigger is going on. Even if you grant that all Jesus is doing there is actually teaching about the only reason for divorce, you have to continue reading on in the Bible and come across an instance where Paul says something like, um, you know, the Lord didn't give any commands about this, but I'm giving you a command here. Or um, when Paul gives us a different uh, reason that someone could become divorced in a virtuous way, as in when an unbelieving spouse is no longer willing to live with a believing spouse. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7. So now we have to ask, is Paul, what's he doing with these words? Well, is he giving the final exemption 
Or is he teaching Christians how to think about novel circumstances, new situations in which divorce might take place and discern if it's uh, a right choice or not? So Christians now will look at these texts and some will say, these authors were doing one thing. They were giving us the only possible reasons for divorce. Others will say, no, they're showing us how to navigate this issue. Um, I would fall in that category, and I think all of you would too, um, because I think you'd say, and there are situations like this in the news, where a spouse will kill one of the children. Is there now an additional um, valid divorce reality? I think most of us would say yes. Like, we shouldn't make that person keep being married to the spouse who killed their child. So we're taking the logic of the text, what someone is doing, and extending it into our realm of lived discipleship. So that kind of gets back into it. My, my main point is, when we come to a text, we have to pay attention to both what it says, but also what is being done, what the author is saying in the text and what the author is doing with the text. Does this make sense? Okay, Tim, you wanted to say something? Yeah, yeah, Paul is appealing to Old Testament authors, right? Um, the, the final thing I want to say about the text is that we all know from experience, but we need to apply it to our reading of the Bible, that there are different kinds of texts that fall on a spectrum from a closed text to an open text. And this is what I mean. Closed texts are more precise in their meaning, and the range of what it can mean is really, really small. It's like a dot from a ballpoint pen. But then on the other side of the spectrum, there's like a broader range of meaning that's still somewhat contained, but it's an open text and there's more meaning that is instilled in it. So for example, in our normal life, on the closed end text of the spectrum, a prescription is a closed text. When you get your prescription from the doctor, there's a range of meaning that's really small take three pills twice a day. Well, what does that mean? Well, because it's such a closed, fixed text, it can really only mean take three pills twice a day. Um, within the shared language and mathematical systems of three meaning units that are separate and identified, you know, three, twice a day, two times, um, and then it might have an addition in the morning and in the evening with a meal. Now, with a meal might be open to interpretation. What qualifies as a meal? Does my two Ricks crackers qualify, or do I need like a certain amount of protein and carb and fiber? You know, so it's somewhat open, but it's pretty fixed. It's pretty fixed. On the other end of the spectrum, we have narratives. And it's almost impossible to say what a narrative means with one sentence. Okay, so I watched this movie last night um, and afterwards I sat down to try to like reflect on what it might mean and I, I ended up writing over a thousand words about what this movie might be trying to get at. Well it's more open and um, really that's tied to the author's intent. The screenwriters and the directors are thinking about the possibilities of meanings that include what's said, it includes camera angles, it includes the way that the scenes are ordered and arranged. There's, there's so much involved that allows for such an open text. And probably, as I listed about 
four interpretations of, of this film. You know, one being that you should never make a robot with artificial intelligence that can become smarter than you, all the way to the possibility that this uh, movie might actually be like anti-parenting and anti-procreation. Um, I think the movie director would say all of that fits. Like, like that fits with my intent in some way. Um, so we know from our experience that there's a range of open open to closed text. And I want to say that something like that is true in the Bible as well. And I'd say that the epistles, especially something like Philemon, are a really good example of more closed texts, where the narratives are a lot more open texts. There's a lot more meaning conveyed in there. Um, and it's, more, it's less possible to say what it means in a sentence when you might be able to say what Philemon means in a sentence um, more easily. Does this make sense when we, we get to kinds of texts? Okay, that's important. We can't just ignore the reality of the text, but we have to put it into context with the author's intent as well. Finally, I want to talk about the, the re reader, okay? Um, texts have readers. Um, without there being a reader, the text doesn't do anything, right? Um, it's kind of that con confusing question of if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a noise? Uh, I don't know. You know, these are really perplexing questions to me. But one of them is, does a text without a reader have any meaning at all? I, I don't know but certainly it doesn't have any agent to activate the meaning in lived discipleship when it comes to the Bible. So readers are really, really important, but we also have to be careful to say that the text isn't all about the reader. I think this is especially important to say because of the current philosophical streams of our day, where a lot of people will say that readers are where meaning um, is found. So readers come to a text and they supply meaning or they create meaning or something like that. And what happens is the text becomes a mirror through which the reader can see themselves in new light in a different way, through a different lens. So the whole act of reading is really about the reader coming to find themselves or to see themselves in the text, right? For the hard to pronounce category of people, these are the phenomenologists. Okay, these are the people who kind of treat texts as mirrors that refract yourself. I want to say that that's pretty problematic. I don't think um, if we care about author's intent, we, we shouldn't privilege the reader over the author, what the author is saying and doing. Now, I also want to say that all of us probably do this without consciously thinking about it. None of us would subscribe to that approach to reading, but I think all of us do it even when it comes to the Bible often. Um, and that's where in a Bible study, you hear phrases like, to me, this means, because we're coming and supplying the meaning. Um, now, I don't think any of us are doing that nefariously, but we are probably doing it habitually, okay? Um, so we have to guard against that. We have to guard against saying that I can come to the text and create meaning, even though um, without me coming to the text, there's not the possibility of meaningful engagement, 
All right, so here's where we won't spend any time distinguishing between meaning and what something being meaningful, but you can see how those two concepts collide a little bit in this conversation. Um, the other error um, that people make is to suggest that readers can come to the text as blank slates, that we can come without any prejudices or preconceptions or prior interpretations and just get at the bare meaning of a text, okay? This, this is not possible, but some of us approach the Bible thinking that it is possible, that we can just come and whatever I read and however I discern it is exactly how the author intended it. I'm a blank slate, I'm an unbiased reader. But that's not true. We all operate within philosophical systems that we're not really aware of all of the time. We all have baggage that we bring to the table. Um, and we need to mitigate that by trying to be aware of what we bring to the table. We need to try to be aware of our preconceptions, uh, of our lack of knowledge, of our subtle desire for the text to mean something and being unwilling to read the text in any alternative way. We all do that. We all come saying, I want the text to say this and I'm going to find a way to get it to say that. You know, we, we all do that. Um, and we just need to recognize that. Um, so I think what can help us is what when we come to the text as readers, reminding ourselves that we're not the first or primary reader. I think what we need to do is try to remember that these texts were originally written to particular groups of readers, and we should try to think about those readers and how the text would have hit them, which will necessarily involve some measure of historical and cultural reconstruction. It will involve identifying the different kinds of readers, because we'd be fooling ourselves to say that everyone who received Romans for the first time all responded to it in the exact same way. We need to attend to the clues in the text that describe the kind of readers who are receiving it. But this is really a lot like listening in on a phone conversation where we're trying to uh, guess at who the recipient is. So you've probably all done this at work before when your coworker is on the phone and you're hearing your coworker talk, and over the course of the conversation, you can pretty well generate an image of the person on the other end of the line. You might not be 100% accurate, but you can be pretty close. And I think that's something of what we have to do when we come to the biblical text. We have to generate an implied reader in our mind, the image of the different kinds of people who could be hearing this, and then we need to filter that through what, the, what response the author is trying to get from them. And then we cross a bridge into who we are in the world we're in and the possible responses that we should have to a text. It, the point is that this takes a certain measure of work that goes beyond um, just looking for a verse that really sticks out to you in a paragraph or in a psalm or on an Instagram post. That, I think, is a way of reading the Bible, but I'd suggest that if you read the Bible in that way, where you're just skimming it for some lines that speak to you, you have to consciously say, that's meaningful to me, but it may not be the meaning of the text. Um, and you, you should be cautious against ascribing divine authority to that meaningful encounter. You know, so 
it means that reading the Bible takes more time and perseverance and effort than um, your general amount of reading because we're trying to bring the author, text, and implied reader together. Any questions or comments about that? All right, let me keep saying a few more things that might help. What, what this means then is that we need to consider author, text, and reader, and meaning is found in um, the nexus of the three. I don't know the best way to say it, but bringing the three together with the, the energizing principle of the three being the author's communicative intent. All are important, um, and we need to consider them all. Um, as we do so, we should always have a provisional reading or a provisional interpretation of the text in which we take a posture of being open to deepening our understanding, slightly revising our understanding or correcting it altogether based on more information that we might encounter. And, and I further want to suggest that this is actually how we engage in every experience in life. When you walk into the room and you see your kids fighting, you have a provisional interpretation of what's going on there. And as you gain more information, you revise it maybe only slightly because you actually know your kids pretty well enough and things like this have happened enough that you can pretty much guess what's going on without any further information. So you might get more information and only have to slightly tweak what your interpretation was. But at other times you learn more information and you have to totally reconceive and change your initial interpretation of that situation. This happens all the time in social interactions. This happens all the time when you're watching movies, for example. Like you might think the movie is taking you in one direction, but then a, you get another scene and it reinterprets, it sheds light on everything you've already seen. Um, so I've been reading this like over a thousand page novel called Infinite Jest by this guy, David Foster Wallace. And on like page 232, you come across information that makes you have to reread everything all over again in light of the information that's there. What he's trying to get you to do is to say you have to have a provisional reading first and then go back and reconceive of things as you gain more information. I think the same is true when we're reading the Bible, and that's one reason we should always keep reading the Bible. We should always be attending to uh, biblical studies in our sermons, in our Bible studies, these sorts of things, because we have provisional readings that we're confident about, but that we are not arrogant about. I, maybe that's the best way to think about reading the Bible. Be confident in your provisional reading, but don't be so arrogant about it that you aren't willing to have it revised or changed. Um, so let me give you an example from a biblical text that I'll use because I know some of you will disagree with me on it. Um, and what's the fun of just saying things to people who will just agree with whatever I say? Um, when you're reading the book of Esther for the first time, and this guy Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, you might be tempted to think this guy is taking a stand for righteousness. He's not bowing down to this wicked Haman. But then you keep reading the story, and you see Mordecai willingly, maybe even gleefully, being paraded around in the king's robes on a donkey with everyone bowing down to him. So you've got to say, okay, my provisional interpretation of Mordecai was that he was this righteous dude refusing to bow down to Haman. Well, now he's okay with everyone bowing down to him. So I should probably question that interpretation, um, and that might lead me to expand 
uh, the information that I'm considering to decide if Mordecai is righteous or unrighteous. So for example, you might say, you know what, I need to read more about Israel's tradition as it relates to bowing down to other people. And you read things in like Daniel, which is really close to Esther, where people don't refuse to like kneel before the king, but they do refuse to worship his statue. You might read things like um, Abraham, where he does bow down to other humans. And you might come out saying, okay, now I've revised my provisional reading where Mordecai is taking a stand for righteousness, and now I think he might be prideful. So you see how a provisional reading will lend itself toward correction or bolstering and reinterpretation down the road. Now, I know some of you disagree with me and you think Mordecai was a righteous guy. Um, and that's, a, you know, if in the Greek edition of Esther, he is a righteous guy. Um, they add this big section where he prays this prayer to the Lord where he says, you know that I would ordinarily bow down to you, anybody who deserves it, but this guy is elevating himself as a god. So, you know, when I met with a Jewish rabbi and talked about this, they have a lot of skits and jokes about this because Mordecai is really a problematic dude. Um, but he's like, you know what, that's why the Greek edition has added portions to it. And that's why there are Jewish texts um, that add and retell the story of Esther. And he was explaining that at least their edition of Judaism looks as those, at those texts as just as authoritative as the biblical text, so they can reinterpret it based on later speculation. Well, as Christians, we're saying the canon's closed and we can't allow Jewish midrash to reinterpret the Bible for us. Um, we've got to land in a, I don't know, I think saying Mordecai's a bad dude. Um, okay, we've got a couple minutes. I have like one more thing I'd want to say, but is there anything you want to talk about regarding provisional readings with confidence, but not with arrogance? Okay, this is my final thing. What are the tools that will allow us to have these provisional readings then? Um, the guy who I'm doing my dissertation with is named Andreas Kostenberger. He's written a book called Invitation to Biblical Interpretation. And he argues for what he calls the hermeneutical triad, three things that we have to be working at when we approach the biblical text. First, he says that we need to investigate historical cultural background. We've got to know what the, the world of these readers and authors. So we need historical studies. We need archaeologists to do work here. We need to benefit from these sorts of things. So next week, Lord willing, I'll talk about ancient Near Eastern history and Second Temple Judaism, which will help us read the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll maybe even talk about some Greco-Roman background. But we need to get into their world to know how uh, what's being said relates to their cultural water, the, the air they're breathing. So one side of the triangle or corner of the triangle is this historical cultural background. It's very different than ours. Second corner is literature. Um, we have to read the Bible as literature. That means that we need to attend to the way it's divided into um, two canonical portions, the Old Testament and the New Testament, replete with covenantal structures along the way. We need to attend to the genre of the writing and understand that there are even genres within a genre, you know, and um, we need to attend to the way that language works. Because in even a non-narrative or poetic text, 
poetic imagery can be used. Figures of speech are used. So we have to attend to the way that language is used. So you have historical cultural background, literature, including canon, genre, and language, and then um, the top corner, theology and practice. So what theology and practice are the authors intending to communicate through these various types of literature, and what's the contemporary, contemporary relevance for us now? Um, how do we meaningfully engage and practice the text in our lives? So history, literature, theology. Uh, so the rest of the course is essentially moving in that direction, investigating key pieces of history and cultural background, key kinds of literature, you know, narrative, poetry, epistle, these sorts of things, and then getting into theological development. All right? Does that make sense? All right. As hard as it might seem or as complicated as it might seem, you're all doing it unconsciously at a minimum because you've been in church for a long time. And as we preach and teach, you're learning how to read the Bible and think about some of these questions, even if you haven't categorized it in this way. All right, we're at the end of our time. I'm happy to stick around for questions, but thanks for sticking it through the last theory lesson. <laughs>